Hi, this is John Van Lunen, and you are listening to Treasures of the Outer Banks. In this podcast, we talk to people who live on the Outer Banks, and through their stories, we'll explore what makes this place so special. So if you downloaded this podcast to find out where the gold is hidden, my apologies. But if you want to meet the people we treasure on this sandbar, stick around. I'm sure you'll enjoy their stories of history, local personalities, and community. There's a Facebook group I belong to called Outer Banks Vintage Scrapbook. And as I would scroll through the post, one name kept popping up. After a while, I realized this guy would be perfect to have on the podcast. John Raley is a writer and author who spent his summers on the Outer Banks as a child and young man during the 60s and 70s. John's recall and ability to tell his story are amazing. You can probably tell he's a professional writer. Our conversation winds around the Outer Banks like a gentle sea breeze. John Raley mentions many of the people and places that remind him of the good times he had here, and he speaks fondly of the people who have been nice enough to share their experiences and stories with him. He remembers that in 1967, a friend of the family told him about a murder that had occurred that year in Manio. In 2021, Raley published The Lost Colony Murder on the Outer Banks, Seeking Justice for Brenda Joyce Holland. His upbringing on the Outer Banks gives him immense credibility and insight. It also allowed him to quickly create relationships with the people he interviews. During our interview, John also talks about his latest book, which has since been released, Annie Griffith's Manio, His Real Mayberry. As a child, I was a big watcher of the Annie Griffith Show reruns, so I always thought it was pretty cool that he lived in Manio. By the way, he was still alive when I moved here, and unfortunately he passed away a few years ago. The fact that Andy Griffith was just a regular guy who would walk around barefoot makes me like him even more. I purchased the Andy Griffith book and it is currently in line to be read very soon. Hopefully, I can do a follow-up interview with John Raley so we can discuss the Andy Griffith book in more detail. John Raley's books can be purchased at Downtown Books in Manio, Buxton Village Books in, surprise, Buxton, and of course on Amazon. John wanted to give a special shout out to the great friends, relationships, opportunities, and experiences that made his time on the Outer Banks so special. Specifically, the Nunnemakers, the Joe Lamb crew, the Seafair restaurant crew, and the Coastland Times. Sit back and relax as John shares his experiences, stories, and friends from the Outer Banks. Thanks for getting on here and talking with me today. Uh, can you t- tell me a little bit about how and when you came to the Outer Banks? Yeah, so this all started with my father being in World War II in the South Pacific on an LST called landing ship tanks. They took Marines into remote um, islands in the South Pacific. And one of the guys he was with was um, Billy Tarkington, who was a he was a beloved teacher at Manio High School for a while. And then he started up the Ocean, the Ocean House Motel in Kill Devil Hills. So um, my father was from backcountry, northeastern North Carolina. And, and, and um, when he got married, Billy was in the wedding. And Billy said, well, y'all got to have your honeymoon on the Outer Banks. And so there were a few cottages there called the Seven Sisters right near Jockey's Ridge, kind of, I think, around the, the little tiny median strip near Austin's. So they stayed there. And um, Uncle Billy lived with his mother in Manio. So he brought a bunch of people to party there every night. I'm sure my mother didn't quite go for that. I think, I think my uncle Billy's ulterior motive was to have a, get them down there. So he could have a place to get away every night. But, uh, but my parents just fell in love in 19 with the place in 1961, they bought um, a flat top turquoise cottage at 10 mile post um, built by Ezra Gibson. It was beside one of the first A-frames that Ezra also built and a uh, great little neighborhood because we had the Mises over at their art gallery. And then we had the Grays and um, just just real good bunch. And the Nunny Makers were right nearby with Buster and Chris. And 
um, and, and Buster's parents, Carl and Sally. So it was just a great place to grow up. And, I, you know, it was an amazing time because, uh, I mean, you know, my parents bought their flat top turquoise cottage for $14,000 oceanfront wow. in like 1961. I mean, you could never, of course, never do that now. Yeah. And um, there was all this barren land around us. Most of the cottages didn't have phones. We'd go over to, you know, if, if, if we gave people from um, our hometown our, our number at Nunny Makers, and if it was an emergency, they'd call and Nunny Makers would send somebody over to our cottage to tell us about it. Yeah. And uh, so, so just amazing to grow up there in the 60s and 70s. And then I eventually worked for Nunny Makers, and I worked for the Seafair, and I worked for Joe Lamb, worked for Ocean Sands when there was a guard gate at Sanderling, and the road after that was just um just a private road and uh wow. when we ate lunch at ocean sands which was nearly to corolla we'd go we'd ride into corolla to winks and that was the only place that you get a sub at winks so wow. and um you know when i was working at the seafair there were like only a handful of bars so it wasn't hard to keep up with everybody and everybody and seafair was party central everybody'd be calling us about 10, 10 o'clock where where's everybody going and you know we'd go to the Car the carolinian was still kicking then um, Papagayos, um, Salmonomies, of course, but they would close early. So that was on, on your day off, you'd go there. But just it was such a such a magical time for all of us. And that's why we all remember it so fondly. It was like um, a whole different time than it is now. And no McMansions. You know, we always mark yeah. our, our places on the beach. You know, there was the old Foosball Palace where we all grew up as teenagers. And then we graduated to Atlantis. Now, of course, they're at McMansions now, so just a, right. it was a magical time. And so, so were you just living here in the summer times as a kid? Y yeah, when I was growing up, I would I would be here in the summertime, and then I lived for a while right after college, um, working for Joe Lamb, and then I always um, then I then I freelance some for the Coastland Times, and um, so I. What I love about the two books I've, I've been working on now is is they keep me going back. I always think of I always really think of the banks as my homeland, and I, I consider myself an economic exile now. We we sold our family place um, about um, three or four years ago, and so now I'm just trying to figure out a way to get down there. As you know, it's gotten so expensive to live there now. Where where was home in the uh, wintertime? Um, backcountry Tidewater, a little town called Cortland, Virginia, which is kind of between Suffolk and Emporia. We had a nice okay. river there, the Nottaway, which I always paddled when I was there, which eventually joins all these other rivers and, and flows into the sounds and flows to the sea. So it's kind of like, uh, you know, as a writer, you define yourself through metaphors and narrative. And I always think of mine as rivers to the sea, kind of like an odyssey. Yeah. And where was the seafair that you worked at? That was about 13 mile post. And um, uh, there's a there's a great old sign from it still standing. Um, okay. and, and one of the houses and they that have those apartments there or something like that. Right. Yeah, I think it's nice. But Heyman did. Yeah. The Heymans lived in that house and then they had apartments for some of the workers. And now it's a nice family that lives in that house. And they said they were going to leave that sign up there. We put it on Outer Banks Vintage um, yeah. scrapbook on Facebook. And I put it on my site as, you know, this is one of the last remnants. And uh, interestingly enough, the other day when I was riding the beach road, I always take the beach road, never the bypass when I can help it. Although there's some very nice businesses on the bypass, but <laughs> including yeah. yours. Um, but um, um, but uh, so the other day as I'm riding in front of that house, uh, there was a guy 
doing driftwood art and he 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 lives in back of in back of one of those apartments there and uh so driftwood has always hit me and that's one of the things my father taught me to love my father was a great body surfer too and he was a lawyer that took on in those days the casino um it was you know this was the days of all the conflict between um parents and, and youth especially the ones in college and i was a little younger than my siblings um casino days but i heard about the stories of them trying to keep order there with um with um mace and dogs and it was rass and and donnie and you're Coyne. talking about the casino so in, really uh, fun you're talking about the casino. Yeah, in casino in action. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what I and by the time I was coming around in the late seventies, there was a watered down place. I think it might have even been called the casino, but it wasn't the same as the big old yellow and white place that had been there forever. Right. Okay. And wasn't there a Seafair two down here by me at Milepost sixteen? Yeah. Yeah. There was um, in the in that little right around that it was it's a it's a little bigger than a strip mall, but kind of, it was on the right on the bypass, and that was. That was the Seafair. Did he call it? He called it the two or the three. They, they, he had the Seafair Junior behind the Seafair for a while, and then in Kill Devil Hills, like I said, it was the Seafair two. I think I'm thinking Seafair three, maybe. Okay. Yeah. I seem to recall remember seeing. Yeah, like I, that, I would wait I tables remember. for Mike some there while I was working for Joe Lamb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so eventually, you go. I guess you go off to college, become a writer. Well, I went to I went to UVA my first year and quickly found out I hated it because I'm a I'm a coastal plain um, ocean kind of guy and I felt some people talk about mountains as freedom I felt like they were going to cave in on me yeah. so I saw the light and transferred to Carolina and majored in English and didn't know what I wanted to do with it and um, but um, I started to mess around with freelancing for um, we were I was living in Chesapeake. Uh, in Great Bridge, and I freelanced for the Chesapeake Post and got a job with the Suffolk paper and eventually the High Point paper and rose up to be um, editorial page editor of the Winston-Salem Journal. And about three years ago, I got downsized from that job in newspapers. Now, it's not a question of if you're going to get whacked, but yeah. when. Yeah. So, you know, I figured out uh, what it took me a while, but I figured out, you know, how I was going to make a living and do something that was fun to me. And um, so I, I have a combination of contract work now. I, I write for Winston-Salem State's um, Center for the Study of Economic Mobility. I do mitigation investigations for the state on death penalty cases, establishing, you know, the rough circumstances people grew up with and why, why the state shouldn't kill them. And then I write books. So tell me about, uh, you, you wrote, uh, the, I believe this is your first book, The Lost Colony Murder. Tell me exactly what the title is, because I don't want to butcher it up. And uh, go ahead and just, you know, tell me a little bit about that story, if you don't mind. Yeah, thanks, John. Well, quickly, I have I have one other book that came out in 2015, Rage to Redemption in the Sterilization Age, A Confrontation with American Genocide. That's an account of me and my team members at the Winston-Salem Journal um, fighting, uh, uncovering this state's uh, forced sterilization program and leading the state to become the first in the country to compensate victims of forced sterilization. When was, um, I'm sorry, when was forced sterilization going on? It went on from 1929 through 1974. And the, neat, the, the interesting thing about that book is, and I really believe the great spirit and serendipity kind of and grace kind of leads me to a lot of things. And um, that story, um, two of the main victims of sterilization I talked to one was from Edenton and one was from Plymouth. Um, and, you know, the part of 
the coastal plain I grew up in Virginia is just, you know, it's the same coastal plain over yeah. from there. So I told their stories in that. And the, the correlation with the Lost Colony book is um, I was raised by an Atticus Finch type lawyer. So I'm always out for the underdogs. And if I see mm-hmm. injustice, I'm hot wired to try to do something about it and to give voice to the voiceless. So um, in the course of that, I, I, uh, I had been to see the movie Chappaquiddick about Ted Kennedy three or four years ago, right after I got downsized. And, you know, the girl that that drowned in the water, powerful and prominent people. And it hit me. I started to write about that. It hit me that we had kind of a similar case or or a case that involved the powerful and prominent around the same time. um, The Brenda Joyce Holland case that I grew up with. Um, I was six years old when it happened. I was talking about my Uncle Billy earlier at the Ocean House Motel. Well, he owned that with Sheriff Cahoon and Uncle Billy we would, we, you know, as children, we didn't know that the ocean was the cooler thing. We always wanted to, you know, the grass was greener. So we wanted to swim in Uncle Billy's cement pond, his pool there. And yeah. so we'd go over there and we'd take a break and go hang out in the lobby with Uncle Billy and Elsie May, who worked for him. And he'd be smoking cigarettes and tell me about this Brenda Joyce Holland case. He had a, he had an old, um, he had one of the Lost Colony programs from that year, this one. And Uncle Billy would flip through the pages and, and show me Brenda's picture and show me the person that he thought had killed her. And wow. it just freaked me out. You know, I'm six years old. Later, I realized once I got into the story that the whole time he's telling me that the SBI for that summer of 1967 was was living in and working out of the Ocean House. So they were probably just a couple of rooms over from me working. Um, so that was fascinating to find out. But so I, so I wrote this one off column about that, tying that to the movie Chappaquiddick. Um, but in the course of it, I talked to Brenda's little, I tracked down Brenda's little sister, Kim, who's just great. And um, and I met um, Claudia, Claudia Fry's Luger Harrington, who Dottie, who's Dottie Fry's daughter. A lot of locals will know um, Claudia, beloved resident of Manio. And um, so Kim and Claudia and Buddy Tillett and I, Buddy Tillett being a retired deputy who reopened the Brenda case in 1995, we kind of took it on and, and started piecing it together. Um, early on, um, someone gave me the 400 page SBI file on the case, which was the Holy Grail. You know, SBI files are sealed. This thing has everything in it from seances to um, a supposed shallow grave to um, the, the suicide of a main suspect. So it's, it was ironic that I started writing columns from that, the SBI's own words, and that prompted the SBI in 2018 to reopen the case. Right. They couldn't do anything with it because these cold cases now, you know, they, they rarely make them on circumstantial, which what which is what this would be. And there was no physical evidence. That's gone. And, you know, it's not unusual for physical evidence to be lost or destroyed in old cases, but this was one of the highest profile cases in the state. They washed Brenda's clothes before they sent them off for testing. Even in 1967, that's kind of warped. Um, so yeah. it was all these fumbles, and um, and that just led me that somebody had to speak for her. Um, John, for for people that might not be familiar with the base facts of the case, should I lay those out? Yeah, go ahead, please. Yeah, so Brenda was 19 years old. She was from the mountains outside Asheville, Canton. Um, good blue collar family. Um, she'd never seen the ocean before she got down there. She, she, she was going to Campbell College. She was a sophomore. She was active in theater there. So she landed the job as makeup supervisor, which was a very big deal for a 19 year old. Um, she was under Rennie Rains, who was costume supervisor, who was just a legend. She worked for Carolina Playmakers the rest of the year, which is the Carolina Playmakers had produced Andy and Thomas Wolf 
And Rennie, of course, you know, she knew Andy and Andy and Rennie were old friends. So Brenda came down to the Outer Banks like like so many people to work in the Lost Colony. By then, a lot of up and coming people wanted to catch the magic that Andy had caught at the Lost mm -hmm. Colony. They wanted to become stars. They wanted to make the connections. Um, Brenda, you know, some people would go to New York to do that. Brenda's took a form, you know, she was more cautious. Let's try this first and make my connections. Um, as you know, Manio is, um, is a very loving, warm place, but at first it can be a little suspicious of, of strangers that the insiders yeah. call wash-ins. Um, they took Brenda in in her one month on the island and just loved her. She, she, she made many good friends. She still talked about there. Um, so, so she was there a month early in the early morning hours of July 1st, 1967, uh, she disappeared. Uh, there was a massive um, search, including mainly her fellow Lost Colony cast members. She was walking home from Burnside Road, um, which is, you know, you turn there at the library, and she was walking over to what's now Ananias Dare Street. Then it was called Main Street. She lived in a house there with Dick and Cora Gray Twyford, who were very good folks, and they rented her a room. Um, she never made it home. So and she so when she didn't show for work that Saturday evening, they knew something was wrong because she was such a reliable person. It just wasn't like her. Um, so a massive hunt started by Monday morning. And so they combed through the woods along Burnside. Um, then they look all around the Lost Colony area. They're starting to find pieces of her, um, you know, things from her pocketbook. Um, uh, her shoes were, were beside the road going over to the old man's harbor bridge. So she's found five days later floating in the sound um, by a Civil Air Patrol pilot who was part of the search. And her, she was partially clothed. And an autopsy would re, um, find that she'd been strangled and, and possibly raped. So Dare County had never seen a murder like this. Uh, and I, I think of it as kind of like the, the beginning of the end of innocence for the county. I mean, people were never really on guard. It was common on, on the island for people to leave their doors unlocked. And this caused a, a rage of fear. And the and Roanoke Islanders, um, as, as one of them told me, he says, we don't judge. We want to know everything about you, especially what you like to drink. But, but we're not going to judge you. But during a few months of this investigation, you had you had some you had some bad things of that uh like paranoia going through the island you had employers informing on employees neighbors informing on neighbors lovers informing on lovers um you had six main suspects two of them were african-american one of them was gay so you had currents of racism and homophobia working and all this set against the supposed summer of love of 1967 so all the twists and turns this thing was taking, I knew I knew I had to set it all down. Yeah, that's an amazing story. Um, I I want to ask you what you think about the suspects, but I don't want to ruin the book. Yes, and um, I drive to the end, and and I feel like I'm equipped to 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 make the case for who who killed Brenda because um, I spent a lot of my journalism career. Um, and I think I'm still in my journalism career, but I have spent a lot of it um, in investigating, covering police and courts. At one time, I was special investigations reporter for the High Point Enterprise. Um, what we were doing with the sterilization compensation work was a lot of investigation. So I feel like I have a pretty good sense of that, and especially criminal investigation. 
I read that 400 page file probably 20 times. And I've talked to people still living that were case insiders. And we, between um, Claudia and Kim and Buddy and I, we really feel like we've got the right person. And and I, the last chapter of the case, I, I make the case for who did it. And I, I kind of build it chronologically. So you can't, I mean, like Cahoon, and the SBI had somebody they liked. Um, you had other people at one time, former police chief, former Manio police chief, Ken Whittington had somebody he liked for the case. Um, so it's all these currents working in there. And, um, but from my reading of the file, it becomes obvious they could have made a strong circumstantial case against one person. Um, I feel like because Brenda was not from the island, um, because one of the families that was that had been tied to one of the, the the suspect we make the case for, even though they didn't like this guy. I don't know that they wanted their dirty laundry on the street um, because he had right. been married into their family, and the there was it was some dirty laundry. But uh, so yeah, I, I feel comfortable that um, that we make a pretty strong case for who did it there at the end. And um, if if we. I've been working through some uh, big books this winter. I definitely want to grab this book now that you've uh, described it. So where would we get that book if we want to go buy it? Thank you. Um, Jamie's great. Downtown Booksellers in Manio has it. Uh, Sheila Silver, Sam and Winston's has it. And um, uh, Bucks, the Bucks books has it. Um, we're trying to get it at some more niche locations, but you can definitely find it through those places and good local bookstores. Good to hear. Good to hear. We can get it locally. Um, let's let's progress a little bit to a topic that I, I kind of enjoy. I grew up watching. I think I lost your video. I don't know if our connection is uh, a little wonky. Can you still hear me, John? I can. I see mine, but now I see you and your. I see another uh, a couple. It might be you and your wife. Oh, you know, it went through, it, it probably kicked into a default photo of me. That's, yeah, that's my wife. That's a default photo. So our connection might be getting a little wonky, but um, I'll-, I'll There I'll, it goes, you're back. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> well, so you want me to do the Andy connection? So, yeah, I want to talk about Andy Griffith and, um, sorry about this phone. <laughs> Let me hit mute over here. One second, please. Um. So I grew up watching um, Andy Griffith reruns all the time. And, and I feel like I was part of the family, you know, and it was just kind of ironic that, you know, uh, I, I moved to an area where, he, you know, he then lives, you know, so I, I don't know. He was he was definitely that wholesome dad and always had some good wisdom, uh, pearls of knowledge and stuff like that. So I, I, I really want to get this book. So um Go ahead and tell me a little bit about this book. And has it been released yet? No. And John, where did you grow up? Silver Spring, Maryland. Um, okay. Lived in a few yeah, places. No, I actually. think that's a good that's a good barometer. I mean, the Andy's nationwide, probably worldwide. Yeah. Yeah. So, in the course of working on this book about Brenda Joyce Holland, like I came from Nag's head culture, and that's one level. But Manio was always, you know, that's very insular, and you just don't go over there and start asking questions. So I, I developed good friends on the on, on the island through through the Brenda book. I always knew I was on the right track because all of my sources talked in the beautiful brogue. You know, ice is ois and to tide is toyed. 
Yeah. And they, you know, it's dis fast disappearing, but my sources speak it. So, um, in the course of working on the Brenda book, so they take me in and they're telling me everything for that. And in the course of it, they'd be going like, yeah, and that's the day we saw Andy over here. And I'd always heard that and I'd seen him growing up, but I'd never been that close. And, uh, I was like, wow, this is amazing. And so, so, um, I was, so, you know, as this book started to draw to a close, the Brenda book, I was going, okay, I need to do this Andy book. And, and the thesis started to develop that, that this, that Roanoke Island formed him as an artist that I, I found a clipping and where he's speaking in Raleigh in 1982. And he said, you know, that Island form gave me where I am today and I'm going to spend the rest of my life paying it back. And, and he did. And I think it's just amazing. As I say, early on in the Andy book, what happened to him in those summers in the lost colony was as magic as lightning over the sound on a summer night. Um, that book um, comes out in May of a year from this May. And uh, that'll be through Arcadia Publishing. And uh, I'm really excited about it because I just couldn't believe nobody had ever done this book before. Like I knew growing up, I'd see Andy around and I always just just from distance and I always knew I wanted to write about him. I'm not equipped to do the definitive biography because I don't have the Hollywood connections or the money to be going out there. But I am equipped to do the you know, the movie Citizen Jane Wells, they talk about what was his rosebud, what was this, his, you know, the secret to his personality. And as I write in the book, I mean, if you want to understand Andy, that's his whole, that island was it. I mean, he, that was his love. That was his anchor. That's why he bought the land early on with his first big Hollywood money, just not even a mile from the lost colony. Um, that was, that's why he kept giving back to the lost colony and his actors. Um, the biggest gift was that Roanoke Island is one of the most pristine, beautiful places on the whole Outer Banks, a lot of which is threatened with overdevelopment. And Andy broke his carefully constructed privacy. That's how much it meant to him to come out and fight for that preservation with Jim Hunt um, and, and some other key people. I mean, it's, it, it was amazing what he did. Andy bought like all these little things he did. He bought, he went to a, he was going with friends toward the end of his life to a, a, a church in Man's Harbor. He bought that church a van. Um, one of his caretakers, he bought her, he put in his will, I want her to have a house. He helped in a broadband drive for, for Manio students. Um, he helped start, he started, his money started the Manio High School band. He paid the director's salary wow. for like the first several years. And, you know, so there, it's, it's a wonderful life type of effect. Like Ken Mann talks about how he wouldn't be where he is as a personality, as an entertainer, as a musician, as a radio guy, if it hadn't have been for Andy's early influence. Um, yeah. Danny Etheridge will tell you about the help. Andy gave the children's home, the children's nonprofit he works for, and just just all these things he's doing right and left. Um, Jack Sandberg was just telling me about how he, Andy comes in Jack's shop one day and he hears um, uh, uh, they had a CD on that was playing this great old blues guy that had helped Andy in facing the crowd, which was Andy's greatest work. And Andy says, "I haven't talked to that guy in years. I'll have to look him up." 
And Jack Sandberg says, we're watching Matlock, uh, uh, you know, a couple of years later. And Andy's devoted. Andy's got this guy in the show. And in other words, and the guy was living <laughs> in Oakland, California. He's probably, you know, like a lot of older blues, blues musicians, not appreciated, um, could use some money. So right. Andy did that to help his friend out. I mean, he was constantly doing stuff like that. He was very complex. Um, geniuses aren't like me. And, uh, you know, I, I think I recognize that you got to understand Andy and his complexity. I mean, and so some people would find him grouchy, but Christ, you know, he was used to, as one Islander told me, he said, you got to remember, we knew him before he was a star. He was used to being able to go anywhere and, you know, not having hordes of people. So, he, you know, by the seventies, he couldn't go, he couldn't just walk down the street anymore without people just hoarding him. I mean, and he still he still managed to get around. Um, you know, he'd love to go to Ace Hardware. People would go to Ace Hardware and Manio just to try to catch a sight of it. Uh, <laughs> you know, and in all these restaurants on the beach, uh, they had what they called the Andy Room. You know, this pri uh, private back room where they'd sit him in. And you know, he could be grouchy to people, but you know, who could blame him? I mean, you know, right. he's constantly you're a private man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Governor Mike Easley has helped me a lot with this, and I I think. Um, you know, he's he's a, he was a good friend of Andy's and they're both, you know, guys that just excelled in the public world of what they did. I mean, Easley's a natural born politician and he's obviously a natural born actor, but yet they were also very private people. So it's, it's a fascinating dynamic working there. And he, Andy Griffith, grew up in North Carolina, didn't he? Yes, he did in Mount Airy. And okay. um since since we're talking locally here for this podcast, we can say that, I mean, it's no secret, Andy had a very ambivalent relationship there. He was an only child, very nurturing, good parents. He always said his father was a better comedian than he was. Um, mother taught him to love music early on. She would she 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 would bring in all her music playing family. They must have been something like the Darlings or something, although I'm sure they were not quite the stereotypes of the Darlings. But Andy would talk about them coming in and they have jam sessions. So but yet his father was like a plant manager in a factory. And Andy was called white trash early on growing up. In fact, Elia Kazan helped bring out Andy's anger and facing the crowd by by Elia Kazan would walk up to him before seeing and whisper in his ear, white trash. And that would just fire Andy up. Yeah. So Andy always, he was very competitive. So that's a big part of his character. I mean, he gets down to the lost colony and um, his first wife, who would become his first wife, Barbara, had dated one of his best friends, Barb Armstrong, who's a great character actor who was in the lost colony. And they were, Bob Armstrong was playing um, John Borden and, um, and uh, Barbara was playing Eleanor Dare. And in the in that scene, in the 40s, in Paul Green's original play, I mean, there's definitely romantic sparks between those two. So you know it's just firing Andy up. He's playing like first soldier, then second soldier. <laughs> Finally works himself up to Sir Walter. But always, I mean, even in volleyball with people, just he was terribly competitive. When that made him rise, I mean, and that's the other thing that made him. I mean, on that island, you know, Barbara and Barb Armstrong, and um, and Ainsley Pryor were her were his three closest people, and they make him as a star. The connections he made with them. I mean, Andy wasn't terribly book smart. He leads behind very few written things. He's a he's a comedic comedic genius. He's a dramatic genius, very sophisticated in his conversation, but he doesn't write down a lot. So you know that makes it all the more challenging. He like he says what it was was football. He just that came to him in his head on the way to Raleigh. So this wonderful little muse action going on that was all based there. And that really, really his his birth as a comedian was doing Hamlet at the old Shrine Club. 
And uh, to do Hamlet, he went over to Barb Armstrong. He lived near him in Manio and they were working the Lost Colony. He said, Bob, tell me about Hamlet. And Bob did. And it's like it's like that scene in Eight Minute Mile where Eminem stands up and he's making it. That's what Andy's doing <laughs> at the Shrine Club in Hamlet for his generation. I mean, after that scene, he it gives me chills. After that scene, he knew he made it. And that was in 1952. And in the next five years, boom, he's right to the top. You know, um, and, and Facing the Crowd was his first movie that came out. Sergeant's um, No Time for Sergeants came out later as a movie. So but so Facing the Crowd, his very first movie, um, he and Elia Kazan were robbed because, I mean, imagine that. I mean, Andy's just like, he's just five years in the business and he's working with Elia Kazan on this major Hollywood movie. And uh, he should have gotten best actor. Elia should have gotten best, best movie. Um, so then Andy had a movie onion head that really bombed. Um, he did Destry rides again and he'd done no time for sergeants on Broadway, but everything's fizzling in 1959. He and Barbara come and live on Roanoke Island for a whole year. That was the longest they ever lived there. And Andy was the choir director. Andy was like this fascinating <laughs> guy who could party like hell all night and then be the choir director the next day. He always had like the devil on one so, so shoulder <laughs> and the angel on the other, like a great, like a lot of great Southern artists, um, Jerry Lee Lewis. A lot of people were like that. Um, so, you know, he, 1959, he's doing that. They're living in their original house, which was their original house um, was just, it was only about 4,000 square feet. It wasn't that big. I mean, but it was by the sound. He could t- take his boats out. So, but then he's working the phones and that's when he figures out, you know, that's when he puts together the Andy deal. And that's when he rises to the top. There's a great interview where the Virginia pilot writer, Mal Vincent is almost accusing him of selling out. Mal was at Carolina, I think like right after Andy and Andy said, no, no, it wasn't a sellout. This is a good, this is going to be a good show. You wait and see. And of course it's art. I mean, I had the good fortune to interview um, Ron Howard um, earlier this year. And he's just, he's just like you would expect. I started off calling him Mr. Howard. He said, call me Ron. And so I was asking him, do you remember as a child on the set, Andy, talking about Andy Manio? He said, oh, heck yeah. He would talk about how much he loved that place, all the pirate lore, how he couldn't wait to be down there to be barefoot. And then Ron proceeded <laughs> to tell me about, yeah, he said the Andy Griffith show is art. It's unique. There was nothing like it. And he confirmed what many people, you know, say that, you know, once Barney leaves, it's, the wind goes out of the sails. It's not the same for Andy. Right. And then he never really hits his stride. I mean, Matlock's very good, um, but it's it's not the art that the Andy Griffith show or Facing the Crowd was. But the thing about Andy, he he never gave up. You got to remember, Matlock, he's in his early 60s. He's wearing leg braces as the show starts under his pants legs because he had Gillian Barre syndrome. And he never complained about his physical ailments. Um, so in the people I've talked to the people on the Matlock set, just just the most, you know, biggest. He was always a pro, always made his marks, always knew his lines, you know, and eventually moves the show to Wilmington. You know, the funny thing about Matlock is a show set in Atlanta that was filmed in Hollywood and then in Wilmington. <laughs> so never in exactly. Atlanta. But, know he, you know, Andy, Andy had great sway on the show. So he got it moved to Wilmington, which was a gift to Wilmington, because that's around the beginning of their time as a, you know, big time movie set place. 
Um, so Andy would work work like hell all week, but around Friday, early afternoon Friday, he would have his private, he'd get on his private plane with his private pilot, and he'd have his little jug of white wine in there on the cooler, and he'd head back to Manio. I mean, I just love Andy as somebody <laughs> that, from my father's generation, you know, they worked hard and they played hard. So right. fascinating. And he always had, he loved his boats, of course. He could have any boat he wanted. Uh, he had some clean line boats built by Jack Allen and Jack Wilson of the island in the early days. And then he discovered pontoon boats. He had some of the first on the island. Um, pontoon boats are ugly, but they're just the yeah. ultimate party boat. You know, they're just stable. Right. They seat a lot of people. And he, he, he that's all he ever had. <laughs> you, know, you know, it's funny. is So uh, we have a pair of sailboat and we we sail out of Shalabag Bay Marina. And, you know, so I, I, every now and then I'm on the boat and, uh, you know, so during the dead times while, while we're going out and coming back, I might, you know, give them a quick tour of what's going on and say, and over there, you know, Andy Griffith, you know, used to live right over there. And everybody looks at me like, who are you talking about? <laughs> you know, nobody knows who Andy Griffith is. I'm the old guy on the boat, you know, and every now and then somebody a little bit younger than me say, oh, you mean Matlock, right? <laughs> say, yeah, Matlock. <laughs> but um, what, what do, you, do you know, um, the coolest stories I heard, you know, after he passed away, a lot of people shared some really cool stories, but I always thought it was cool that he would just, when he was around town, he would just walk around barefoot, which I think is just so classic Outer Banks, you know? Yeah. Well, it was also connected. Yeah, I remember him seeing walking around barefoot. And, you know, one of his stops would be the liquor store. And this everything was so connected. Like when Andy went in the liquor store, the the, the which was there by Foodorama, um, you know, the guy the guy that was um, supervising that liquor store was Robert Midget, who used to be called Singing Bob to, to, um, so he wouldn't be confused with other Robert Midgets on the island. <laughs> you know, there's Robert Midget that plays Manio. And, but this Robert Midget was in the play early with Andy. So everything was connected. And, you know, Andy's having just so much fun, um, you know, and he loved practical jokes. Like at one point he would, he and a friend would, this was after he was divorced from Barbara. He and a friend would ride to Kerala when Kerala was really the last frontier. And, you know, they go to their old Jeeps and they drink beer and look at the horses. And so one one weekend after that, one of Andy's good friends was a banker. And um, Andy would this guy was recently divorced and Andy would stop by and bring him drop by lunch, just looking after his friend and leave it with the secretary. And one, one time my friend said, did you see Andy today? And she said, oh yeah, he, he put it in the break room. So my friend picks up the sandwich, looks like a good hamburger and he starts to take a bite. And he says, all of us, before I took a bite, I realized that was a horse turd in there. So this was Andy had <laughs> saved a horse turd from the weekend before. This was how, how immaculate he was in his practical jokes and how crazy. So, and, and, you know, my friend called him and said, I saw it before you got me. <laughs> so, <laughs> I just think that's the craziest thing. Yeah, Andy would have let his friend take a bite of that. I mean, that's how wacky oh, that's he was hysterical. as a practical joker. Oh, my gosh. So did he just pretty much rattle around the house for those last few years that he lived in Mania? I mean. Yeah, he would. Good friends would take him out on, on, on the boats and he would get out and. You know, he was bedridden toward the end, and and that was just he? killed him because he was a very active person. He had his his yellow his yellow labs were with him at all times, and he loved them. And before he got bedridden, he just loved to sit in the old house, and he'd watch he'd watch Andy Griffith, he'd watch reruns of the AG show, and he'd yeah. have one of his labs beside him, and he'd be um, eating crackers and putting peanut butter on him, and eat one and give one to the dog. And he would call out the line, the next line of the show, you know, when he'd stay <laughs> on the show. 
uh, yeah, Absolutely. and just just love to do that, and and love to love to reconnect with everybody. Um, one of his goddaughters um, told me that you know she she would he would come by and see her where she was working and they would talk about the old days and his eyes would just light up. He had such a varied set of friends. One of his, one of his good friends was, was Jimmy, the late Jimmy Austin that, that ran uh, Austin, Austin fish company with his family and they mm-hmm. hung out together and just, and Andy, Andy would stop by and see Miss Sandra, you know, that um, Jimmy's widow that still runs the store. So just always kept in connection with his people. Wow. I'm so and glad always, got he just tracks the evolution of the place. Like, um, you know, uh, Mr. Tommy Daniels, that that Ben Franklin and Nags had, you know, that was once Daniels um, department store in Manio. Then they changed the name to Ben Franklin. Mr. Tommy always ran it, who died a few years ago. And now his family still owns it in Nags Head. And, you know, Mr. Tommy Daniels was one of Andy's best friends. Cor, Cormay Bass Knight um, was one of his best friends. Um and uh, her her granddaughter um, Claudio uh, is is a good friend of mine that helped me so much on the Brenda book and is helping me with the Andy book too. So it's just right. like it's just like one degree of separation. I mean, yeah. you can get out on that water around Roanoke Island as you do and look at his house, <laughs> and he's right there. I mean, you can imagine him being right there, and that's what I think is so important about this book to preserve and record all this because this is not the even I hear that somebody might be working on a definitive biography that's touched on a lot of Hollywood. And, but these, these people aren't going to record all the local stories that I'm getting. I mean, this is amazing right. stuff and it really is his birth as an artist and how he gave back. Yeah, that's, that's so good. I'm so glad you're, you told me about that story and I can't wait to get the book. Um, you know, I don't want to take up all your time, but do you want to share any other uh, stories about anything else on the Outer Banks? I know you, I know you share a lot on the, uh, so both of you, you and I are both on that. Uh, it's an Outer Banks vintage scrapbook, and uh-huh. a lot of a lot of people share some great pictures and stories on there. Um, and anything else you want to share? Yeah, just um, I would say one of the fascinating things about Matlock was, you know, the his big another big gift to Manio and Roanoke Island was when he brought the hunting party episode um, in 1989 to, to be filmed a double episode in Manio. And that's just like the homecoming party. It's just so fun. You can tell Andy's having so much fun. He's, he's got all the bass nights and other families in bed parts. Hunt, our buddy Hunt Thomas is in there. Hunt, and you know, this is another thing that's just one degree of separation. Like I visited with Hunt and his mother, Miss Margeline the other day and Miss Margeline goes back to the even before Andy and the Lost Colleen, she knew wow. Andy and all these contemporaries right there. So during the but as he's thinking about it, he Andy knew he wanted to you know bring the uh, a double episode. He didn't know it was going to be the hunting party yet. So at one point he's thinking about doing it about the Brenda Holland case, but friends told him it'd be too controversial, so he hits on the one he did. But that was so fascinating to discover that because. You know, as I'm working on the finishing up the Brenda book and, you know, Andy had already started to invade or to come into my thoughts <laughs> and into the Brenda book. And as I'm finishing that up, then there's the direct tie to the Andy book through Matlock. So, you know, he hits on the hunting party that involves a murder relatively, you know, murder is relatively rare for Dare County. And this sure. the hunting party also involves drug dealing, not relatively rare for Dare County. Like and this was filmed in 89. So, you know, I remember that's not too, that's right around the time we had t-shirts that said, save the bales instead of save the whales, you know, <laughs> right. like on square shrimp, square grouper on, on the back of t-shirts. And, you know, cause it's all these canals and drops coming in 
I remember yeah. uh, a certain um, a friend of mine that was a <laughs> charter boat fisherman out of Oregon Inlet. He's coming in one day and he um, he finds a bale and he'd had a it had been a rough season for him. He'd blown an engine, you know, and charter boat fishing. That's you know the mates can make more money than the cappies. The cappies got all the overhead. So my friend, you know the you know the cappies always talk on their radios. They have the prayer going out that Omi Tillett started, and then they always talk coming back in. So my friend, who shall remain anonymous, he gets on the radio and says, uh, my financial problems are solved. I found a bail. <laughs> <laughs> and he gives it to his mate to take home and store. And then, of course, the feds find out about it, go get the bail. Somehow, thank God, neither one of them got any time out of it. <laughs> oh, man. But so Andy knew all that. And Andy's so close to the culture. So he knew that making a making a show that involved drug smuggling would hit it. And he was close to the sheriffs, too. You know, they loved him. And. And, you know, he just right. put locals in right and left. He uh, at one point, my friend Angel Corey, um, she ran this great Outer Banks magazine. And it's got a scene where Andy's reading Outer Banks magazine. You can see the cover up. Always looking out for people, always giving shout outs to his friends. I mean, uh, when great. he did the show, he's got, you know, one of his best friends who was one of just a leading great citizen of Manio back in the day was Dr. Dr. Harvey. And um, Andy in the show, he'll say he has references. Yeah, better call Doc Harvey. Joe Layton was, you know, the legendary director of um, the Lost Colony, who looked just like Joe Namath. Joe Layton was just an amazing character. Um, so, at, at one point, Andy's got a, character, a photographer. Um, he says, "Yeah, that's Joe Layton over there." <laughs> and, uh, the, 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 the thing was about Andy and Joe Layton was, I, I've never been able to find out where they intersected because there was no room. There was no room on that island or anywhere big enough for the two of them to fit in there. I mean, yeah. Joe Layton was almost a bigger star than Andy. Like Joe Layton, before he got to the Lost Colony, he had won Tony's Emmys. He, Barbara Streisand, Diana Ross, they wow. were all dying to work. They all worked with him and loved him. I mean, so it's all part of the magic of that island. Just unbelievable magic fireworks going there. Yeah. It's such a beautiful place, too. I love going to Manio. I live up in Southern Shores. Love Southern Shores, but just if you want a little village, that idyllic little seaside village, Manio is just a gorgeous place. You know, yeah. I, I could hang out there all day. Exactly, John. And those high bluffs on the north end, which I would always think, gosh, if I ever could get down there, I would love to live up there. But those, I think that's probably on the and those high bluffs are some of the most expensive, but beautiful. Yeah. Right. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, outstanding. Um, I think uh, I, I just think oh, one thing, John, if Go I ahead. could. Um, I just wanted to give a shout out to to my Joe family, Nunny Maker family, Seafair family, and Coastland Times family that have they've helped me so much with this. Yeah, Absolutely. they just helped me, help nurture me as I I like to think of myself as an outer banker, and I owe it to all my friends like that. And the Coastland Times ran my columns that that I developed uh, that, you know, led me to develop the Brenda book. So Teresa Schneider, who's, you know, direct descendant of the Meekins, the legendary Meekins of the paper, real good people. Yeah, we have, I'll, I'll make some show notes for the, uh, the podcast and, you know, I'll, I'll be sure to mention all those people in the show notes as well. Give them a little tribute. Um, the, the name of the podcast is called treasures of the outer banks and you're definitely a treasure. Uh, I appreciate you, you know, uh, uh, Carrying, carrying the torch, so to speak, and sharing all that information with everybody. I, I can't wait to read the books. Well, John, thank you for that. And what you're doing is so important, too, and what Outer Banks Vintage is doing. I mean, we don't have David Stick and Acock anymore, and I'll certainly never live up to them, but I can try in my own way to, to, right. to record things as they would have done. Absolutely. All right. Thanks for your time, John. Thank you, John, and we'll talk soon. 
I hope you enjoyed this talk with John Raley, and I encourage you to buy his books. I think you'll appreciate them. Thanks again to John Raley for giving me some time and sharing some behind-the-scenes stories. Hopefully, we can get him on the show again. Until next time.